this is when I really love and grasp the sovereignty of a God. There was just not even a choice. That's when I knew it was a calling. It's like, we're feeding these people, and we're going to serve these people if they're in the hospital, if they need prayer. And so it all came through just a calling that I believe was started before the foundations of the earth. And I've been so surprised that I'm right smack in the middle of it. struggling. Um, we're going to be struggling even more. So we decided to do a little food bank outside of the office here in Rosedale. We um, started out in front of a little storefront uh, children's clothing store and we had a tiny little bookcase shelf and just put up some canned goods. And it was literally just things out of our pantry like beanie weenies. I mean, it was just really, really minimal. And people would not come up to the shelf of food. And so we decided to get in our cars and drive around the neighborhood um, with our windows down. And we just were saying free food at the end of Montgomery Street. And before long, we outgrew that little shelf. I'm going to say that we probably serve 25 to 30 households. Very diverse. So mostly what we buy is fresh produce and dairy, eggs, cheese, and meat. We're trying to buy groceries that um, go with each culture. God, we thank you for all these things. God, we need you. We need you. We need you more today than we did yesterday, and we give it all to you now. That we are actually um, meet now in Union Missionary Baptist Church has been something that we never even pursued that God brought our way. As we began to have a place that we could gather together inside and to keep the food that needed to stay cold, cold, and and to be able to spread it out, um, it just made a an avenue for us to be able to actually spend time to sit down and talk and share life with each other and just sharing each other's stories with each other that we began to just see all of our needs to pray for each other. With um, Reverend Steele and Tom Franklin and then members of Oak Mountain Press coming alongside, it began to grow into incredible relationships and getting to know the people in the community and starting to share life with them. What we do is out of love and it's, it becomes the fishes and the loaves. We so many times think we're going to not have enough and there's always enough and it's just been amazing to see how God goes before us and provides. I've been overwhelmed over and over by just the beauty. If anything, it's like, I'm like, this is where Jesus shows up. The Rosedale Food Pantry just a few women from the church, 
to whom God gave a a vision, it started small, and God multiplied it. Just like the little boy in John 6 with five loaves, another ministry we support at Oak Mountain, five loaves, and two fish. And the disciples said to Jesus, what is this among so many? But the boy gave what little he had, and God multiplied it. And Kathy and Kelly said the same thing. We're always afraid we're not going to have enough, but there's always enough. Just like the boy with the loaves and the fish. And when it comes to our generosity, whether it's our time or our talents, our gift package, or yes, even our financial resources, God promises that when we step out, He shows up. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 9. We're continuing our series in this uh, incredible letter of Paul. Uh, A letter where he continually cries out the theme of strength in weakness. The world, even many in the church, try to avoid weakness like the plague. Yet scripture couldn't be more clear. God promises that we will experience strength in weakness. And this week and last week, we're focusing on the particular theme of strength in weakness through generosity. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is about five years of Paul's life, a project he was committed to. Paul wanted to show the unity of the church, the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, by having the Gentile churches give a material gift in response to the material need of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, the Jerusalem church was, of course, the first church planted after Pentecost. And that Jerusalem church had to bear the brunt of missions throughout the rest of the Roman Empire. The the Jerusalem Christians paid for the gospel to be brought to the Gentiles all across the empire. It was because of the obedience of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that the gospel spread. But as a result, their resources were depleted in Jerusalem. Not only that, but there were famines and droughts, and inflation in Jerusalem was over 300% per year. And taxes in Jerusalem were over 40%. Not only that, but the Christians in Jerusalem, the Jews who were converted, were persecuted by the Jews who were not Christians, of whom, of course, there were many. And the Jewish Christians were ostracized. Uh, They weren't allowed to barter and trade for goods and services. And so there were many poor. And Paul wanted to say to the Jerusalem Christians, through the Gentile Christians, we wouldn't be here in Christ were it not for you. So we're going to share our material goods, practicing surprising generosity toward God to you. Now what was interesting is as Paul writes this letter to the second, the second letter to the Corinthians, which we've said before is actually the fourth, but don't get worried and hung up about that. 
The Macedonian Christians was who he was with. He was in northeastern Greece. You've heard of Philippians, Philippi. You've heard of Thessalonians, Thessalonica. And Paul witnessed firsthand how these Macedonian Christians weren't a whole lot better off than the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Paul says they gave according to their means and even beyond their means. That's surprising generosity. Giving beyond our means. Giving according to our means is tithing. Everybody can tithe. Just take 10% of what you earn. You can tithe. But surprising generosity begins after the tithe. And surprising generosity is being moved by Christ and his love for us on behalf of the gospel going elsewhere and making an impact in the community. So with that as a backdrop, let's see what Paul has to say to us about practicing surprising generosity. At times it leads to strength in weakness, but God promises in unique ways to show up when we step out. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along as I read a a very encouraging passage. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 15. This is God's word. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us precisely because he loves us. And he wants us to experience his power as he calls us to courageously practice surprising generosity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We would be lost without it. But we need not only to know this word in our heads, we need it to penetrate our hearts. So come, Holy Spirit, whether we're in this room or we're live streaming, do a work of grace in all of us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So I gave you the specific context of this five-year project of Paul from 52 to 57 AD, this, this service, this contribution for the Jews in Jerusalem who were poor. But Paul makes it obvious in this text, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that he's speaking of a generosity that goes way beyond the current context of A.D. 52 to 57. He is talking about our lives in the internal Word of God as well. So real quickly, let me show you why it's clear that this is a broad application to us. First of all, look at verse 8. Paul says that God will supply us for every work in every way of generosity. In verse 11, we'll be enriched in every way to be generous. In verse 13, there's a contribution for the poor in Jerusalem and for all others. So it is so clear that practicing surprising generosity is the mark or one of the marks of a true disciple. Surprising generosity being practiced is a part of Christ-likeness, the same way you would count other things as elements of Christ-likeness. So how does God want to use Paul to propel us toward practicing surprising generosity? Three ways that Paul inspires us. First of all, practice surprising generosity according to biblical principles. We're going to look at biblical principles Biblical promises and biblical plans this morning. The first point is practice surprising generosity according to biblical principles. Four principles briefly in this text. First of all, the obvious one, look at verse 6, the principle of sowing and reaping. Paul talks about this a lot. He uses the farmer illustration. Now, they don't sow today the way they did back then. Back then, the the farmer would have a sack of seed and literally uh, put his or her hand in the sack and just start casting seed. And it, it doesn't take a genius to understand that generally, the more seed you sow, the more seed you cast, the greater the harvest is going to be. And Paul applies that spiritually. And that sack on your side is the sack of God's provision. The seed are your material resources, your finances. And God calls us to practice surprising generosity by sowing bountifully. And he says, he promises, as we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully, the principle of sowing and reaping. So there's a principle that as we sow financially, the kingdom of God will reap a great harvest. Now there's also a warning. It says, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. You know, the promises of grace are no more beautiful than the warnings of grace. God gives us warnings so that we might know what's important to Him, so that we might know how to grow spiritually and things to avoid to experience spiritual heart disease, if you will. And Paul says that if we sow sparingly, if we're 
miserly in our generosity. We will reap sparingly, not merely talking about the kingdom of God not having as much of a harvest, but he's talking about what happens in our own lives. There's a supernatural principle of sowing and reaping that affects the soul. And somehow, in a mysterious way, as we sow bountifully, there's a principle that our soul reaps bounty. But as we sow sparingly, our souls become lean and sick. The principle of sowing and reaping. Then there's the principle of biblical intentionality. Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Paul wants us to give. God wants us to give thoughtfully, reflectively, soberly, purposefully. That's why we ask each year for intentions. We're we're not just trying to figure out our budget, although that's part of it, but wanting to disciple the congregation, we want to follow God's Word that says, before you give, really think about it. Really pray about it. Dialogue as a family. Discuss among your friends. Pray. Take some time. Giving is not something that is to be done impulsively. And it's not something that is to be done emotionally. It's supposed to be a settled decision as we wrestle with our own hearts and we go before God and discover our need for fresh grace. The third biblical principle is called the principle of the heart. Look at verse 7, the second part. Give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, That Greek word for cheerful is where we get the word hilarious. God loves hilarious givers. He, He loves givers that are reaching into that sack and just sowing all kinds of seed. There's freedom there. There's hilarity. There's lightheartedness, which is the opposite of reluctant. And compelled. You know what word reluctant means there in the text? Reluctant means you're more concerned about the sorrow of what you're giving up than you are excited over the joy of what your generosity is going to be used to do. More concerned about what you're giving up than more excited about what God's going to do. That's a reluctant giver. And then Paul says, not under compulsion. Paul doesn't want us pressured by shame or guilt. One of the things I've tried to do for decades here is whenever I preach on generosity, which is often because God talks about it all the time, whenever I talk about generosity, to try to especially be gracious and kind and smile a lot so that you all would know, I'm not trying to coerce you. I'm simply wanting us to be aware of how important generosity is to God, how important it is to the kingdom, and how important it is to our own spiritual health. Don't be shamed into giving. Don't be guilted into giving. Now, 
what God isn't saying here is, well, Bob, I could give a thousand a lot more cheerfully than I could give a hundred thousand, so I'm just going to give a thousand. No, that, that's not what God's saying. God's saying is, he doesn't want us to give reluctantly. He doesn't want us to give compulsively or under compulsion. But what he really wants is for us to do business with him. What he wants, if we're reluctant or feeling compelled, he wants us to go before him and say, God, I, look, <laughs> what do we talk about here at Oak Mountain? The grace of God. God, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm reluctant. I'm not even sure why. But God, do a work of grace in me. Or, God, I know Bob wasn't trying to shame me, but I feel shamed. I feel guilty. I don't want to give that way. See, we just do business with God. And then, really, the fourth principle of uh, surprising generosity is actually where I struggle the most. And that is the biblical principle of sufficiency. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, As God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency... In all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What he's talking about here is the manna principle. Daily bread. Jesus uses the manna principle when he teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread is sufficiency. In Exodus 16, when God promised the manna, he said each person gets an omer. That's sufficient. That's all you need. So living the principle of sufficiency is living according to daily bread, not excess. Can I just tell you that's hard for me to think about? I don't don't want just enough. I want a little more. I'm a control freak. To live by daily bread? Now, just to set your mind at ease, he's not against saving. He's not against preparation. God is talking about a heart that is content with a lifestyle that's just enough. But the fact is, even that is hard. Because we're surrounded by a world where nothing is ever enough. And no matter what we have, we're actually played upon every day in the television that we should want more. Not only that, that we deserve more. And the principle of sufficiency says, who are you going to listen to? The world or God? Many of you know that we have a daughter that lives in Denver. And uh, I read something the other day. Uh, I'm so thankful for those GPS apps for driving. (laughs) Uh, I can remember when we started this church 31 years ago, uh, I had to copy map pages. And then at night, look under the light, try to find the light post to find the number to get to, to where I needed to go to visit somebody. And now we've got Waze and Google and Apple Maps and all these things. Well, there were a whole bunch of people this one night that were on their way to the Denver International Airport, very busy airport. And uh, there was an accident on the main way to get there. And what is great about these apps is they'll reroute you. And so this app rerouted everybody 
And what the app didn't know and the people didn't know that this rerouting was down a dirt road. Have, have you ever had, happened to you, by the way? I have. It was like, where is she taking me? And uh, sure enough, uh, she was taking them down a dirt road. And what she didn't know was that there had been a huge rainstorm and the whole road had turned to mud and everybody got stuck. Hundreds of cars. They interviewed one of the people who were stuck afterwards. And, and this lady said what all of us were thinking. There were a hundred cars. They were all going in the same direction. We were all using the same app. What could possibly go wrong? How many of us are using the world's app instead of God's app, the Scripture's? when it comes to the principles of surprising generosity. And as a result, how many of us are following the world and only end up getting stuck in the mud spiritually? Practice surprising generosity according to biblical principles. Secondly, practice surprising generosity according to biblical promises. And these promises are incredible. Folks, 2 Corinthians 9 isn't about being generous with your time. There's plenty of passages that talk about stewardship of your time. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is not about stewardship of your spiritual gifts, your talent, your gift package. There's plenty of passages that talk about that. It's not talking about. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is only talking about your finances. That's the application. And these promises are related to your finances. First, the promise of grace. Now, if God says something once, it's, it's his word, right? He only needs to say it once. God said it, that settles it, right? That needs to be our attitude. If God says it once, that's key. That's, that's, that's infallible guidance. If God says it twice, listen up. He's trying to get our attention in a very unique way because he shouldn't have to say it twice. We said to our kids all the time, right? I told you, I told you once, I'm telling you again. If God says it three times, it's, it's like double exclamation point. We really need to pay attention. God says the same thing three times in three verses. Look at verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you get abound in every good work. Okay, the promise of grace. Look at verse 10. Same thing. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Simply repeats verse 8. Verse 11, same thing, third time. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Now, what I want you to know is the promise is not related to prosperity. The promise is related to generosity. God promises to multiply our financial seed so that we will continue to give practicing surprising generosity. This is really important. Notice verse 8. God has made it to be all grace abound to you, serving all sufficient at all times, period. No. So that you will abound in every good work. Verse 10. Supply seed, bread, will multiply your seed, period. No will multiply your seed for more sowing. You see that? 
Verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way, period. No, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. God never promises prosperity. He promises multiplication for the purpose of increasing generosity. That's what Malachi is talking about in Malachi 3. Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse, God says. Test me in this. See if I will not pour out from you blessings from heaven, not for the accumulation of wealth, but for the increase of generosity. Now, how we apply this, thankfully, there is great freedom. There's nobody going to tell you what you ought to do but God. But God wants to do business with our hearts. And he's given us all these incredible promises related to him multiplying our financial seed. Not to build bigger barns like the guy did in Luke 12, but so that we could be enriched to be even further generous. And God, the seed that God is promising is not just material seed, although it is that. It's also this spiritual desire to be free toward God and free toward the kingdom and free toward others. The second promise regards the the impact of the harvest. Look at verse 8. God blesses the harvest so that we can abound even more generously in sowing. But what he means by the harvest is not only the kingdom of God. He's also talking about this increase of harvest in spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, that our hearts will actually be changed as we practice surprising generosity. That's what Jesus meant when he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus is saying, when we store up treasures in heaven, there actually will be a supernatural work of grace that transforms our hearts even further. It may be the area of joy. It may be the area of victory over sin. I don't know how God is going to multiply your harvest of righteousness. All I know is that He promises He will. And He intends on us to believe that promise that it will be certain. Verse 10, he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You know, how, part of your righteousness is your joy. Okay, the fruit of the Spirit. How often have I bought things that gave me an initial rush of joy and then it breaks? Isn't that, isn't that the most frustrating thing? To buy something and it breaks on the first day? I mean, do your children learn those kinds of lessons quickly? They get a new something and it breaks the first day. Well, it doesn't matter how old you are or how big your toys are. Stuff breaks. Stuff wears out. But apart from that, stuff just doesn't have a lasting rush. It's not supposed to. Only Jesus offers fulfillment. And so this biblical promise of harvest has to do not only with the kingdom of God growing, but also the kingdom of God within us growing as well. God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving. That's what this chapter says. God prospers us not to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard 
of giving. And then think about what Jesus says. Fear not, little flock. God is pleased to give you the kingdom. You don't, you don't have a father that's miser, miserly toward you. You have a father. Now look, you've heard this said, you can't outgive God. That's what Paul's saying here. But he's not saying you can't outgive God like everything's going to be easy in your life, that you're not going to have to make lifestyle changes. He's saying that you can't outgive God in the sense that he will give you the grace that you'll want to make those lifestyle changes. It's not necessarily going to be easy. And he will, yes, provide spiritual seed for you to grow in character and joy. And also, he will multiply your harvest. In other words, you may give a thousand, but Jesus says he will multiply your harvest 30, 60, and 100 fold. Remember the sower? Good seed. He's talking about the gospel and character, but it applies to generosity as well. We're all getting things for matching gifts these days, aren't we? Well, God doesn't promise a matching gift. He promises a multiplicand of matching gifts. When we give, God says he multiplies the harvest. And our gift to Christ through the church, God promises to multiply in the kingdom. 30, 60, and 100 fold. Think about that. There's no investment anywhere that's going to give you that kind of return. Right? 300, 400, 500, 600 percent. No one's going to give you that. But the kingdom of God will. It may not be for your own wealth, but it will be the impact of the kingdom. And then thirdly and finally, practice surprising generosity according to biblical plans. Two plans behind God's call to surprising generosity. First of all, that's how he's honored. Well, one of the ways. Think, think of all the ways you think God is thanked, honored, and glorified. Okay, there's not necessarily right or wrong, but just think of all the ways that you consider honoring, glorifying God and brings thanks to him. Paul tells us in this text that surprising generosity is one of those ways. Verse 11 Generosity will produce thanksgiving. Verse 12 will result in many thanksgivings, plural, to God. Verse 13, they will glorify God. See, as, as the church experiences generosity, God is glorified. God is honored. It is, it is a means of grace that leads to worship. You ever, how often do you think about that? We talk about worshiping God with our tithes and offerings, but there really is a sense that, that people all over the world, all over the nation, all over the state, all over our neighborhoods, our community, are thanking God for what Oak Mountain Presbyterian Church is doing in this place. God is getting glory. And God says that's one of the reasons why he calls us a surprising generosity. But notice it says they will glorify God because of submission that comes from the confession of the gospel. There, there's something counter-cultural about surprising generosity that grabs people's attention so they honor God. Wow, there really is a God. Because this is so counter-cultural. There must be something to this risen Jesus thing. And then also Surprising generosity is part of God's plan for true community. Verse 12, as we practice surprising generosity, the needs of the saints 
are met. We are a family. And as we bring surprising generosity to Christ through the church, it increases the affection that the body has for itself. There are people in this church that are thankful to God and really see this church's family because this church has ministered to them. But as you give and practice surprising generosity, your commitment to every person here also grows because you realize you're giving to a body, you're giving to a family. And that's what Paul says in verse 14. They long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then the last purpose or plan for surprising generosity is it points us back to Christ. Look at verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul sums up this two-chapter sermon on generosity by saying, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Jesus left the Father's throne, laid aside His glory to live a life that you and I could never live. And then He laid down His life in surprising generosity by dying a death, paying a penalty we could never pay. And as you let that gospel of grace so deeply into your soul, you're going to become aware of a beauty that words can't describe. You're going to discover in the gospel a wonder that is inexpressible. And as your heart gets in touch with that Jesus, Nothing else matters. You're my everything. You're my everything. You're my everything. And surprising generosity just becomes a freedom response of joy. For what you've done for me, I'll do whatever you want. And that, in turn, grabs the attention of the world who says there must be something about this Jesus. May God continue to use Oak Mountain Presbyterian Church to preach to the world the inexpressible grace and gift of God who is Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of Jesus. Uh, thank you, Lord, uh, for challenging us. You're, you're not a God that just sits there and holds our hand all the time. You're, you're sometimes a God who, who really challenges us. And thank you for that. Lord, we do ask that as we finish out the year, uh, that we would finish strong financially. Thank you so much for the work of grace you're doing. And God, we pray for ministry in 2021. It could become one of the most important years of ministry your kingdom has ever experienced. So Lord, prepare us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.